focus today my attention upon two verses in John 11, verses 25 and 26. The words of the Lord Jesus. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? There is a need that all of us share in common. We all need life. There is never more full realization of this than when we helplessly sit next to the bed of a loved one who is dying. We cannot draw a circle around us or our family or our friends so as to insulate us or others from death. In fact, while we all sit here so comfortably this morning, these bodies are, in fact, now perishing. From the youngest child to the oldest adult, we are, even now, perishing. We are all hastening to our inevitable appointment with death. Now, someone may say, that is sure a very grim view of life. Well, grim as it may seem, it is the truth. And it is a very sobering fact at that. Ignoring this truth that has just been stated will not make it go away. It may be just as sobering for one to hear from the doctor that he has cancer. But unless one knows that he has cancer, he will not seek the help he so desperately needs. In the same way, it is profitable for each of us to consider our own mortality, our own death, and the death of our loved ones. As we're encouraged to do, in at least a couple places in the Psalms, in Psalm 39.4, we are encouraged there Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days what it is that I may know how frail I am. Likewise, in Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Dear ones, when we contemplate our death, I believe we'll also contemplate what is truly important in life. For what is important at death ought to be what is most important to us in life. Those things that we would think about 
and meditate upon and reflect upon at the time of our death are the things that we ought to be even now focusing our attention upon, not forgetting, not ignoring, and not neglecting. At death, dear ones, the perishable things of this life lose their glitter and their charm. And that which is most important is that which will last for all eternity. Either eternal life or eternal suffering in hell. Jesus, you recall, put it so graphically and starkly in Mark 8, verse 36, in a parable. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What has he profited for all the so-called pleasure all of the possessions, all of the things that he cherished in this life if he loses his own soul. There was only Jesus Christ rose from the grave never to die again. Only Jesus Christ has conquered death. Only Christ's tomb is empty. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come to make our lives easy and comfortable upon earth. He came to give life everlasting to those who are perishing. He is. He is and alone is the resurrection and the life and all who come to Him and embrace Him by faith alone for their eternal salvation shall receive the free gift of eternal life. The main points from our text this Lord's Day are these. First of all, the Lord's response to the death of Lazarus in John 11, verses 1 through 37. The second main point, the Lord raises the dead from the grave in John 11, 38 through 44. And number three, the response of the people to this miracle in John 11, verses 45 through 47. Let us consider our first main point, the Lord's response to the death of Lazarus. And I won't read all 37 verses in as much as we have just read those 37 verses in our scripture reading. The inspired purpose of the Apostle John in penning this gospel account of the Lord Jesus Christ is succinctly and concisely summarized for us in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. This is the reason, this is the purpose John states for this gospel of John and certainly for this portion of the gospel of John. Speaking of the miraculous resurrection of Lazarus. It says there concerning not only the resurrection of Lazarus, but other miraculous signs that Jesus did. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. The purpose of these miraculous signs and wonders is not simply to wow us. It's not simply to provide healing for those who are sick. To merely raise those who are dead, to merely provide comfort. Certainly those are reasons as well, because our God is a God of love and compassion and tenderness and comfort. But the primary reason, John says, is that he would glorify himself, reveal who he is through Jesus Christ, that we might believe in Jesus Christ. That we might embrace him by faith and have everlasting life. That's why he has revealed these miraculous signs and wonders for us. Now note first the Lord's response to the illness of Lazarus. In John chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Focusing... Here upon verses four through six, primarily, when Jesus heard that, heard that Lazarus was sick, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick. He abode two days still in the same place where he was. Here we learn that Christ receives a message from his beloved followers, Martha, Mary, Bethany, to the effect that their brother Lazarus was very, very ill, even sick unto death. There is a sense of urgency uh, to this message. There's that sense of come immediately while he is still alive, Lord. While he is yet breathing, come and lay your hands upon him and heal him and raise him up from his bed of affliction. But rather than immediately setting out for Bethany to heal Lazarus, the Lord intentionally delays his departure two more days, according to John chapter 11, verse 6. He waits two days longer upon hearing how sick Lazarus was. Now, one may be tempted to respond, that sure is a strange way for the Lord to show his love for Lazarus, whom it says he loved here. He waited two more days to set out. Two more days so that Lazarus grows sicker, sicker, and so that he actually dies. I would have you note the two stated reasons as to why the Lord deliberately delayed in going to heal Lazarus in these verses that we have just read. First, 
Christ delayed his going in order to glorify himself. John 11:4. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Dear ones, God often delays his coming to us to heal us or to deliver us from our trials and afflictions, our tribulations and sorrows, in order to glorify himself. In demonstrating the greatness of his power at our weakest point, so that there is no question at all who is to receive all praise and all glory for our deliverance. You know, this is the very issue at heart in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, where the Apostle Paul cried out to the Lord three times that the Lord would heal him of this thorn in the flesh. And he was told by the Lord that this was sent, this affliction was sent to humble him so that he did not boast in pride at the great revelations that he had seen, that God had made known to him. And the Lord assured him at that particular point in time that the Lord Jesus said, My grace is sufficient for thee. My grace is sufficient Even if you are not healed, Paul, my grace is all that you presently need. Furthermore, the Lord gave these comforting words to the Apostle Paul. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. When can we see the power of God most clearly? When we are boasting in our own strength or when we are humbled and into the point of utter helplessness and weakness. That's what we see in the case of Lazarus. That is why the Lord would glorify himself. How much more weak can a person be than to be dead? No strength at all. No life at all. Can you dare say God did not manifest his power and his glory in Lazarus at his point of utter weakness? Remember, dear ones, the delays in your life are God's way to receive all glory and praise from you. Those delays in coming to your aid and your help when you feel you're absolutely in such need. Those delays and when the Lord says, I'll tarry another couple days. Doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Doesn't mean he doesn't care for you. But he is out to glorify himself in your weakness. Second, Christ delayed his going because... Interestingly enough, he delayed his going because he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That's stated in verse 5. 
Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that is Mary, and Lazarus. Now, notice verse 6. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick. The therefore indicates, because he did love them, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he waited two more days. Very interesting. Not only Christ's revelation of himself as the Son of God, but his infinite love for these two sisters and a brother led him to delay coming to them as soon as they wanted him to come. Now, how can this be? We are tempted to say, if I heard my child crying for help, I would go to him immediately because I love him. How is it that Christ can delay his coming to Lazarus because he loves him? Dear ones, as earthly parents, we so often only see the physical needs of our children. But God, our Father, sees our spiritual needs and what trials will empty us of self and build our faith and our trust in him. Build character, build perseverance in our lives from which we will learn to trust him all the more. Every single delay in our lives has a most holy, wise, and loving purpose directed toward us as God's beloved children. Will we believe we are wiser than he? Will we believe that we are good and more good than he? Will we believe that he sends these trials in our life because he loves us, not because he hates us? I ask you today, dear ones, how are you handling the delays that God has sent into your life? How are you handling these delays? these interruptions, these periods of waiting and waiting and waiting. Are you frustrated? Are you angry? Are you impatient? Are you despairing of all hope? If Christ can wait two extra days until Lazarus dies in order to reveal his power and his love, for an undeserving brother and two sisters. He can delay coming to you for the same reason. And that is what you must cling to. That is what you must hold on to in all the delays God sends into your life. Let us therefore, dear ones, confess our sin even now in our hearts. Confess our sin in hating his delays. That's a sin to hate the delays God sends into our lives. To become angry at those delays. Let God humble us before him at this time. And may he renew our faith in his wisdom and in his love, knowing he has a holy reason and purpose 
which will both humble us and exalt him. God's delays are opportunities to see his glory and his love revealed. Have you thought about that in the midst of those delays? And so back to our text. While the Lord delays, Lazarus dies. We see this in John chapter 11, verses 11 through 15. Lazarus dies. The Lord makes it very clear that Lazarus is now dead. But we also again notice here another purpose of the Lord stated for us. After he states that Lazarus is dead, he says in verse 15, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Not only am I glad for the sake of Martha and Mary, because this is going to show them my glory and my love for them, but I'm glad for your sakes as well. To the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. That's the same truth that's stated in John chapter 20 that we read earlier, that these signs which the Lord did to reveal himself to be the Son of God are given for the purpose and reason that you may believe in him. And so we see here that God's delays not only are intended for those who are in the midst of those delays, but also for the comfort and encouragement of others who are observing how we respond to the delays which God sends into our lives. Your delays are intended to help others, to comfort others. For we all are in various ways, we are all in delays. Every single one of us has those delays in our life. And if we, by God's grace, can be encouraged and we can use that to encourage others as to what God is doing in our lives and how He is provoking us to love and to good deeds, to see more clearly the, the glory of Christ and the love of Christ in the midst of these delays, you can use that And that's the intention that the Lord says here, to cause faith, to lead others to be brought to faith, to encourage their faith as well. Even the disciples of Christ, having spent three years with Christ, needed this delay in their lives in order to have their faith strengthened in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's so easy to read the biblical accounts of those who suffered in the scriptures and to minimize their sufferings and their having to wait upon the Lord because ours are so great. We minimize what the saints went through in the Bible. Job's suffering... Dear ones, was not only for his benefit, but was for your benefit 
and mine as well. David's fleeing the grasp of his enemies was not only for his benefit, but was for your benefit and mine as well. The persecution that the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ faced in standing faithful to Christ was not just for their benefit, but was for your benefit and mine. And even the many failures of God's people was not simply for their benefit, but for yours and mine as well. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. Now, all these things, you just uh, enumerated how Israel, having been given so many blessings, having been brought out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt, having been delivered by God, provided for all of their needs and feeding them, clothing them, being their God, their salvation. They murmured against him. They complained against him. And they fell into various types of immorality and idolatry. In verse 11, we read, Now all these things happened unto them for examples. For examples to us. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. See, we try to make our temptations and our trials absolutely unique. No one's suffered like I have suffered. No one's been through trials as I have been through trials. And so no one can really offer us comfort because our suffering is absolutely unique. No one can come alongside to encourage us because what we go through, no one has ever gone through. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, God says, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. You're not unique. I'm not unique. We all go through trials and temptations. But it goes on. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. The Lord will not leave you hanging. The Lord may delay coming, but he will not leave you hanging. He will come to your help and your aid. Back to the text. Now, as the Lord arrives in Bethany, Martha runs to meet him, filled with grief and sorrow, as we see in John chapter 11, verses 20 and 21, where we read these words concerning Martha. It says, Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Now, there is a measure of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ communicated in that statement. As if to say, I know you could have healed him, Lord. If only you had been here before he died, I know you could have healed him. There is a measure of faith there. And yet there's also a very serious misunderstanding of the power of Christ as well. 
did Jesus need to be bodily present in order to heal Lazarus? Did he have to lay his hands upon Lazarus in order for Lazarus to be made well? Could Jesus not have healed him from a distance? Simply spoken the word as he did in the case of the centurion servant in Matthew chapter 8 verse 13 where he simply spoke the word and that servant was healed? Of course he could. <clears throat> the Lord who spoke into existence all things could have merely spoken the word that Lazarus be healed and it would have been accomplished. Now, Martha here, dear ones, is evidencing a weakness of faith like that manifested by Thomas. A kind of faith that says, seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. However, that's not of the nature of faith. The nature of faith is to believe when we do not see. It is simply to hear the promise of God, to hear the word of God and to say based upon who God is, based upon who Christ is, his power, his wisdom, his knowledge, his truthfulness, his love and mercy, I embrace what Jesus says as true. I embrace it as my own. That's taking God at his word. That's faith. Not believing or seeing, not seeing is believing. How many have said, if only God would perform this miracle or this sign, I would trust him. If only I lived at the time of Christ, or if only Jesus were here in the flesh, I would be able to cling to his promises. If only I could see him. I would cling to his promises. And yet, so many times in Scripture, God reveals that that reveals that seeing is indeed not believing. You, know, you can look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 17, at your leisure, where those who were at the grave guarding the grave of Christ when he rose from the grave in glory, bright light, and knew exactly what had happened that he was no longer in the tomb, went forth and did not believe in the face of such a miracle. And in fact, just a couple verses after that, even many of his disciples who were gathered there when the Lord gave the Great Commission, it says, many worshipped him, but yet some doubted as they beheld Christ. Lingering doubts even in the face of seeing. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man said, Lord, send someone from the dead to go and tell my brothers, my family members about this awful place of torment and hell. And surely they will avoid it. Abraham, Father Abraham says, to the rich man in torment there in hell. It says, in effect, if they will not believe the testimony, the witness, what God has already revealed in his word, 
they will not believe even if one is raised from the dead. And in fact, that is what happened with the Jews. Jesus was raised from the dead and the Jews did not believe. Do you believe? On the testimony of what God has revealed concerning Jesus Christ, do you believe that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead? Is that your hope and is that your comfort that he is the resurrection and the life? That's faith. That's saving faith. Embracing that. Not because you see Christ now in the flesh, but because it's been revealed to you by God in his word. I can assure you that if you do receive that, though not seeing, yet believing, you have everlasting life. Oh, the gentleness of our Savior here and bearing with his weak saints, poor Martha, struggling, doubting, fighting her emotions in this period of weakness, and yet the Lord does not berate her. The Lord does not severely correct her. The Lord tenderly comes along beside her to encourage her, to give her yet a promise to encourage her faith. Martha continues in John 11.22 by saying, But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Here we see Martha's faith in Christ to raise the dead, for she knew how he had previously raised the dead. For example, had raised the daughter of Jairus and the son of the widow of Nain. And she believed that the Lord could immediately raise her brother from the dead as well. She expresses that faith. Christ declares in John 11:23 that Lazarus will be bodily raised from the dead when he says thy brother shall rise again <clears throat> to which Martha confesses her faith in verse 24 in the resurrection of the dead on the last day Martha saith unto him I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day <clears throat> Although she confesses that Christ could immediately raise Lazarus from the dead, it's as almost as if she did not want to hope that the Lord would choose to do so at this present time. Jesus then declares himself to be God in the flesh by declaring himself to be the resurrection and the life and to have all authority over death, whether now or later, in verses 25 and 26. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and life. She was looking to the future, the future resurrection and life. Jesus says, I'm not, I, I shall not be or merely shall be the resurrection and the life in the future, but I am now, presently, I am always the resurrection and the life. Yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same. The Lord uniquely claims for himself that he is the very source of life 
in saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Not that he simply imparts life, but he is the source of life. Life is with him. He is life. He doesn't simply possess life. He is life. And therefore, he can impart life as he chooses, as he wills. Because he is life, death cannot overcome, overwhelm, or destroy him. Amazing as it is, he who is the source of life and from whom all life springs He is the very one who became a man and voluntarily laid down his life as a man for undeserving sinners like you and me in order that he might conquer death, conquer sin, conquer the miseries of this life and hell for all who embrace him. Dear ones, if Christ was raised from the dead to show himself the victor over death, over sin, over misery and hell, what enemy, what trial, what affliction, what temptation is there that he cannot overcome in your life and mine? There is no reason for us to give up. As much as we struggle and strive with sins and temptations, there is no reason to give up because he is the resurrection and the life. As our resurrection, as the resurrection, all those who die in him will bodily be raised from the dead on that last day, according to John 11:25. And so when he says, I am the resurrection of life, our union with him by faith assures us of our future resurrection, that we too will be raised from the dead. <clears throat> You know, that's a central tenet of the Christian faith, the resurrection of the dead. Why is that a central tenet of the faith? Because Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ was raised, then all those who are in him by faith shall likewise be raised from the dead. Paul argues that if there is no resurrection of the dead, for believers in the future, then Christ himself was not raised because of this union between the head and the members of the body. If the head is raised, the body must be raised. And that's why that's a central tenet of the Christian faith, the future resurrection of believers, because not to believe it is to deny that Christ was raised from the dead. But to embrace it is to say that he who is the firstfruits has been raised from the dead, likewise the harvest will follow thereafter at his coming. And that's our hope. When times become so intense in our lives right now, when the miseries of this life, when the trials and afflictions and the besetting sins seem so strong, like a mighty storm ready to blow us out of the boat and to drown us by its huge waves. Jesus comes walking upon the sea, saying to the sea, be still, be calm, quiet yourself. 
because he is the resurrection and life. He is the one who has that power, having been raised from the dead himself. And as Christ is the resurrection, so is he, the life. All those who are made alive by the Spirit and who embrace Christ by faith alone shall never suffer eternal death in hell. For the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, according to John 11:26, where Jesus says, And whoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. In other words, those who receive spiritual life by way of re- the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit shall never suffer and die the second death in hell. They have passed out of condemnation, been ushered into life. So the Lord assures Martha that he is the resurrection and that those in him will be bodily raised from the dead and he assures Martha that he is the life that all of those in him have everlasting life and shall never suffer that condemnation in hell. And Jesus asked Martha, Believest thou this? Not with simply a verbal confession, Believest thou this? Don't simply profess it with your mouth. Believest thou this because... You embrace it because you believe it to be true on the authority of God who has made this promise to you, his people. Dear ones, you cannot be a Christian and yet not believe that Christ is your resurrection and your life. That is what you embrace by faith. What else is there? then that Christ is our resurrection in our life. If we do not embrace that, there is no life. Our very hope of eternity rests upon Christ being the resurrection and the life. Is he the resurrection and the life? Or is he a liar? Those are the two options. If you don't believe Christ is a liar, you must embrace him as the resurrection and the life and as your resurrection and life. Martha embraces Christ as the resurrection and life. In John eleven twenty seven, she says, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Now, if Christ is the resurrection and the life, as he here declares himself to be. Why are we not immediately delivered from physical death and miseries of this life when we believe upon him who is the resurrection and life? He's not going to be the resurrection and life. He is the resurrection and life right now. Why are we not then immediately delivered from all the miseries in this life and from death itself? Well, let me offer to you why the Lord, in principle, has removed all of these things. Judicially, it's all removed, the condemnation, the miseries, and death itself. But why we still experience these things in this life? 
Five reasons. First of all, because the Lord yet uses death and the miseries of this life to sanctify us and to cause us to yearn for heaven where there will be no more death and no more miseries. The Lord is causing our hearts to yearn for heaven to come, for that future resurrection as well, because of what we suffer now. Second, because we are cast upon Christ who overcame death when we ourselves face death and the miseries of this life. We are cast upon him who is the resurrection and the life. Is there a greater comfort in our death, dear ones, than to cling to Christ who conquered death? He who has already passed through death and been raised from the dead, is there a greater comfort to us than to cling to him who is the resurrection and the life? It's not my words at your death or before you die that are going to bring comfort. It is the word of Christ. It is Christ himself who will bring comfort. It's not merely who you have around you as you are dying. It is Christ and his promises that he is the resurrection and the life that will bring that faith and joy and happiness at that time. The third reason for why we yet face death because we are students following in the footsteps of our teacher. Our teacher suffered death and then he was resurrected. He was glorified. Our teacher was humiliated and then he was exalted. We follow in that pattern as the head so the members of the body. We must expect humiliation here on earth. We must not expect that everything is going to go well. If we have those types of expectations that everything is going to go exactly as we want it to go, if we have not learned yet as many years as God has up to this point given to us, we will likely never learn that lesson. Things are not going to go well because as a Christian, we suffer humiliation now before our exaltation. Fourthly, because we glorify God, we yet face death, we're not yet delivered from physical death because we glorify God and lead others to our Savior who witness our hope which lies beyond the grave. How many people have been brought to Jesus Christ as they witnessed how Christian, a Christian died? As they witnessed the parting final words of Christians who had hope in the resurrection and the life. And finally, because we are taught to redeem the time because death is always imminent to us. None of us knows how long the Lord will give us to live. And because we will face death physically, we've been de delivered from the condemnation of death, 
uh, we will yet experience death so that the Lord by it might teach us how to redeem the time that is given to us, that we not be fools and waste it. That we know there's going to be an end to our lives. And for some of us, it's much closer than for others of us. Now, as we look back to our text, we see that Martha exits and calls Mary to come to Christ. In John 11, 28-29, Mary immediately rushes to her Savior and makes the same unbelieving statement that had previously fallen from the lips of Martha. In verse 32, Mary says, just as Martha did, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Sounds like an echo. Again, the Lord does not stop to correct or to admonish, to severely rebuke Mary for her lack of faith. Which, again, is there's no question. It was a statement. A measure of faith, yes, but certainly far from the full and mature faith that we would hope to see in a Christian. The Lord is ever gentle. Instead, our text says in verse 35, in verse 33, he groaned. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And again in verse 35, it says, Jesus wept. Here we see the deep sympathy of our Lord who suffers with his bereaved disciples as our great high priest. His heart was breaking with their hearts. The dear ones, the Lord not only weeps with those who weep, but he also groans and his trouble over the cause of this misery, namely sin, the cause of death, namely sin. He groans over the effects that sin has brought into the world. He groans. I ask, dear ones, are our hearts breaking over the suffering, afflictions, and trials of one another? Do we even care? We may not be able to raise the dead as Christ did, but are we willing to help in tangible ways to comfort those whose hearts are breaking over the sufferings and the afflictions God has brought into their lives? Are we rather mired in our own sufferings? We all have them. Are we rather mired in our own sufferings, feeling sorry for ourselves, licking our wounds, or are we rather trying to help others to step outside of ourselves? The way to be encouraged, the way to fight back against self-pity is to minister to others and serve others. The way to be overcome by self-pity, the way to fall into despair, despondency, and hopelessness is to stay right where you are. Stay in bed. Don't get out of bed. Don't try. Give up. But the way, by God's grace, to overcome that is to say, I don't feel 
right now, I don't feel like ministering to others and helping others and serving others. But by God's grace, I'm going to begin praying, at least praying for others that I know are in need. I'm going to even by faith take the next step to call, to write, to encourage in some way someone else so that I stop forgetting about myself and rather focus upon others who have needs. Dear ones, are we also moved with a holy hatred for the cause of misery and death in our lives and the lives of others, namely sin? Are we growing in our hatred for sin? Are we asking God to help us to hate more and more our own sins? Not simply the sins of others. We can you know, do that very well because the sins of others may have certain consequences and effects on our lives, but are we growing to hate our own sins? Because they're simply an abomination against God. Not simply for the effect that it has or does not have on our lives, but because it's an offense against a holy God, against the one who loves us the most and has sent his son to die for us. The Lord does not want us to remain in that mournful condition of simply hating misery and sin. For the whole point of this text is that Christ has turned our mourning into rejoicing, for he is the resurrection and the life. What appears to us to be hopeless and impossible is not so to him. This is our comfort and our joy. The last two points will go very quickly here. Second main point, the Lord raises the dead from the grave in John 11:38-44. The Lord comes to the tomb of Lazarus and commands that the stone be removed from it. Lazarus has now been dead for four days and Martha reminds the Lord that by now the corpse of Lazarus is corrupting, it decaying, and it stinks, Lord, in John 11:39. Again, the Lord invites a weak, struggling, doubting Martha to look to him as the resurrection and the life in John 11, verse 40, when the Lord says, Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe that thou shouldest see the glory of God? Didn't I tell you? Simply believe and trust in me and you'll see God's glory. You'll see God's glory. He who is the resurrection and life prays to his father and then authoritatively rebukes death and denies death its victim by calling forth to the dead, Lazarus, come forth in John 11, verse 43. What a spectacle to behold. To see this one who is rotting, stinking, decaying, coming forth in these grave clothes, bound up, as they did at that particular time, bound up. don't know whether taking small steps or hopping or how he came out of that grave or came to the, the, the mouth of that grave. But there he appeared. Can you imagine the hushed silence that fell upon everyone who beheld? This one who was dead, who was laid to rest a few days before. Now standing before them. And the Lord says, unbind him. Unbind him. 
take these grave clothes off of him. They no longer fit him at all. The Lord could have raised all of the dead in all of the tombs that were in the area there all at the same time. He could have raised all the dead in all of Palestine or in the Middle East at the same time by simply calling forth all of the dead to come forth at that precise moment. But he didn't. He raised only Lazarus from the dead. Why? Why did he raise only Lazarus at that time from the dead? Because he was not able to raise any more from the dead? Of course not. He who can raise one from the dead can raise two from the dead. He who can raise two can raise ten, a hundred, a thousand, a million from the dead. I would submit to you that he raised only Lazarus from the dead in order to graphically portray for us our own spiritual resurrection from the grave of our trespasses and sins. Just as Lazarus was completely impotent and unable to bring about his own resurrection from the dead, so likewise were we, for we, according to Paul in Ephesians 2.1, were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead corpses spiritually, like Lazarus was physically. We were alive to sin, but dead to God and to all righteousness. But Christ, the resurrection and the life, called out to the dead and said, Greg Price, come forth. Come forth. And I came to life in Jesus Christ. He loved me before I could love him. He gave me life while I was yet dead to him. The question that keeps coming back to me, as no doubt it comes to you, is why me? Why would he say to me, come forth from that grave, when he could have said to someone else, come forth and omitted, passed over me? Why me? When there are so many that he has not raised from the dead, why me? Perhaps Lazarus asked the same question. It was not due, dear ones, to my love for him, but his love to me. I was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So where is boasting? Where is pride in all of that? It is buried it is buried in the amazing grace of Christ who is the resurrection and the life. Third and final point, the response of the people to this miracle in John 11, verses 45 through 47. You know, dear ones, people will have different responses to Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Some will see him with the eye of faith and will embrace him as the resurrection and the life, as we see in John 11:45. says, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Others, others will see him or hear of him and will not believe, just as we see likewise in verses 46 and 47. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. 
and we know the Pharisees certainly had no good intention in gaining that information. To go to the Pharisees was a sign of unbelief on their parts. To receive Christ by faith, dear ones, is to receive eternal life. To refuse Christ. To refuse and turn your back upon Christ. To ignore and neglect Jesus Christ is to receive eternal death. It is to love death. It is to love torment. It is to love eternal suffering. To turn your back upon him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Why will any of you today, within the voice, the sound of my voice, why will any of you today refuse such a loving, wise, powerful, and faithful Savior who is the resurrection of life and comes to you offering, offering to you that life? Why would you possibly turn away? Well, unbelief will turn from that offer. Turn to him in faith, even now, every one of you. Receive that. Dear ones, if Christ is truly the resurrection and the life, there is resurrection life for your marriage. There's resurrection life for your family. There's resurrection life in overcoming that besetting sin in your life. There's resurrection life in patiently enduring all the affliction that God brings into your life even now. The question is not whether Christ is the resurrection and the life. That he is. That he is. That's true whether you believe it or whether you don't believe it. Nothing's going to change that fact. He is the resurrection and the life. He's not in that grave. He's exalted in heaven. The real question is whether Christ is your resurrection and life whether you have received him, whether you are trusting in him as your resurrection and life. Are you living each day looking in faith to Christ as your resurrection and life? That's the question. He's not only able to raise Lazarus and others, he's able to raise you. Will you lay hold of him? as he offers himself to you in the good news of the gospel. Can you raise yourself from the dead? Absolutely not. If you would be raised to life everlasting, if you would enjoy the benefits, the privileges of life everlasting now, if you would see life infused into your mortal existence now. Receive him by faith. He will come. He may delay his coming, but he will come in the midst of your sins, your afflictions, your trials, and at death itself to assure you that he is the resurrection and the life. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Thou hast given to us that which would be unthinkable to receive if Thou had not told us and revealed it to us in the good news 
that it is preached unto us today. Lord, we not only could not believe it, we could not receive it, we would not want to receive it if thou did not give us the grace to embrace Christ now. O Lord, our Savior, we do pray that thou would turn our the eye of faith upon our Savior, that, Lord, we would see and understand that in all his delays, he is not frustrated. He's not uh, in suspense. He's not nervous about the outcome. O Lord, our God, we pray that thou would cause us to behold such a glorious Savior who is glorifying himself in his delays that he brings into our lives. That he is demonstrating through these delays his love, for he sins delays because he loves us. And he is using delays to to minister comfort and encouragement and instruction to others. We pray our Father that we would embrace him who is the resurrection and life today, who has judicially delivered us from all of the miseries of this life and from death itself, who has delivered us from hell and torment and ushered us into life everlasting, not because of any worthiness or goodness in ourselves, but because he did set his love upon us. Our Lord and our God, may we be humble today. May pride and arrogance be buried. May humility be raised, O Lord, from the grave. Lord, Jesus is our life, for we are united to him. And he has ascended into heaven for us. He is there interceding now for us. And he is coming again for us. We pray, our God, that thou would open our hearts unto thee. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, 
Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.